1: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet in the beautiful eastern Sierra. I'm your co-host, Stacy, <laughs> and <laughs>
2: someday we'll get this down. I'm co-host Christopher, and with us, as always, is our wonderful producer, Doug. Hey, Doug.
1: Good morning, Good Doug. Good
0: morning. How's it going, How's guys? How are you doing, Doing all right, just uh, going so fast I can barely handle it. But, but I fell into my seat, and we're actually recording, so let's go for it. That's
1: I awesome. hope you didn't. I hope you didn't spill your coffee.
0: No, no. I, man- I okay. I'll always manage to preserve my coffee.
1: Good. <laughs> Well, I, I'm turbocharged with coffee today because I'm recording from my home office, but I've already been back and forth to town, which is an 18-mile drive one way twice. Right. Wow. And it's only 9.30. Um <laughs> Thanks to teenagers. You know, this is what, what happens. I forgot this. Oh, okay. Um, but when I was driving home today, I know the second time, right. I noticed that um, the fire threat sign is down to low. Yay. Green. We haven't seen that for, for quite a while.
2: It's one of those... That's a wonderful thing to hear, because I hadn't seen that, and um I always just glance at it every time I drive into town, Um, especially during the summer, because, you mm-hmm. know, it's almost one of those seasonal things now, like the water tank on Sherwin Grade. It's like... You know, summer comes, and the threat goes up to orange or red, yep. and then winter comes, and and it goes back down. And this, this seems to be earlier than last year, right? Uh,
1: yeah, I think so. Well, I think it was last year at this time we were still dealing with that fire that came, and I can't remember the name of it.
2: Tamarack Fire. The Tamarack Almost.
1: Fire, right, that came right up to the edge, <laughs> you know, it hit Red's Meadow, and everybody oh, yeah. Yeah. was— everybody was ready to evacuate. And that That, was part of our our COVID community meetings were also, okay, well, what are the routes that are going to be open if we have to evacuate?
2: Yeah, that was a different fire. And I forget that that name too. I mean, there's been so many of them, they all kind of become a blur. There was that one, which came right up to Red's Meadow, which is right right behind Mammoth. And then the Tamarack was up in just near Antelope Valley and the Mountain View fire and you know, and then the fires on the other side of the mountain, so right, yeah, it's crazy, yeah, so it's an exhale when that fire threat sign goes down,
1: definitely, and we were you know we were lucky to get that snow that we got last week, which I think helped drive that threat, yeah, down, but you know we both read a book um. In the last couple of weeks, where there was a town that wasn't so lucky and um, had experienced the, pretty much the destruction of, of the whole town. And right. the book is called Paradise One Town Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. It's written by Lizzie Johnson, who's a reporter from San Francisco, who ex- kind of experienced the whole situation firsthand. Right. Right. and um it's it's a new book it just was published i mean the the fire that she talks about only occurred in november of 2018 so yeah um but oh it's just a it's a devastating story
2: it's a, it's a heart-wrenching story right and that would mm-hmm. be the I I think what makes that fire so monumental, this was the camp fire. Right. And what she captures so well in this book is that it was an yet another unprecedented wildfire, both in the speed that it moved and the scale that it moved because it basically, right. it, it started over kind of in the North, uh, central uh, Western slope of the Sierras north of us. Um, but it started quickly, and the winds whipped it up quickly, and within two hours, that little town of paradise, which truly was a paradise, right, was just engulfed in flames. and the, and, and the fire ended up killing 85 people just who could yeah. not get out. So um, what she did is uh, she, she, like you said, she was right there, and you know she chronicled the fire, but she also stayed and chronicled the aftermath and interviewed right. a lot of townspeople about what they and- went through.
1: And did a great job for, you know, portraying the background of all the different people that she talks about. Right. So that you get the sense of the before and after. Yeah. And, I mean, you know, that really helped set a context. So it's, you know, this isn't just about the horror of of the fire and what happened, but you you already feel like you you've met these people and you knew what their lives were like. Right. And then this happens. So it's a it's a t- complete arc
2: from start to finish. And that reminded me, I don't know about you, Stace, but that reminded me of Eric Larson's approach mm-hmm. to narrative nonfiction where he'll pick this kind of event and then he'll go back and do the backstories of different characters yeah. that lead you into this event. So it's almost more visceral, the experience of reading it.
1: Absolutely. I thought I thought that made it more you know, in a way it Made it a little easier to read, you mm-hmm. know that that you you did you were that you had this investment in these people in their lives, right? And some of know? them were
2: some of them were firefighters, some of them were just regular townspeople, right. some teachers or hospital mm-hmm. employees. One of them was bus a drivers. bus driver. Yeah, yeah, and it, so it's just people from all walks of life and why they chose to live in Paradise and where mm-hmm. their life was going, and then this right. fire came and just interrupted all of it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, there's that comparison with Eric Larson, um, just in terms of keeping the story going, like her writing is very good and it's very crisp and the chapters are fairly short. So the pace is fairly quick and it just adds to that kind of adrenaline you get as you're reading because the flames are always getting closer
1: (laughs) in every chapter. Well, and she also does something where she sets up the beginning of each chapter by relating it to a concow mm-hmm. a Native mm-hmm. American legend about fire. Yeah. And that that's kind of a nice that's kind of Eric Larson ish in a way to, you know, that he he has the setting, you know, right. it provides that setting. Um, So it does. I like that. Yeah.
2: And that was almost, I think by happenstance, the way she described that she was on a tour and there was some Kankau tribal Mm -hmm. members who were telling this story, um, in relation to talking about the campfire. She's like, Oh, can I, can I get a copy of that? Can you, can you record that for me? And I can put it in the book because it was really relevant to wildfire. Yeah. Um, I thought that was, that was powerful too, but you know, um, you know, what I liked, the, what I liked is probably a difficult way of saying it. What gripped me the most were all those individual experiences that were happening while yeah. this two, four, eight hour period of time was going through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the, it, that she really conveys the speed of how this fire kind of blew up and right. took over re- without blaming anybody, without pointing fingers just you know in a, in a very newspaper right. article style you know right. just kind of exp- okay well this happened and then that didn't happen that caused this to happen and yeah. you know the you know, it's very plain to see that the lack of communication or and the the various disparities of information mm-hmm. that were happening between and amongst the agencies. Right. Really caused the failure to evacuate this town properly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You she, know, she did talk about um well, a couple things on that, and the first one is that, yeah, you know, the the fire was moving so quickly, no one had ever experienced a fire that moved this quickly, so some right. of them couldn't believe it, the reports that they were hearing right. that the flames were closer, and so, you know, nine one one was giving out one message, but the fire department was giving out another, right. and then the mayor had to deal with it and make some snap decisions, yep. and she had challenges, you know,
1: absolutely, and she wasn't. You know, sh- there was lots of differing opinions about her, right? And so there were a lot of people that were like, "Well, I'm not going to listen to her because I don't like her," and <laughs>
2: not know- helpful,
1: right? Exactly, mm-hmm. and that was, you know, re- led to tragedy in a, in a whole. In many cases,
2: yeah, and I think, like you described the interconnectedness, one big factor that uh, really trapped so many people was the evacuation plan and how they relied on this one main artery road to get people down out of the hills and down into right. the valley you know, to Chico or wherever, and how what happened was it just became a massive traffic jam. They had, mm-hmm. quote unquote, rehearsed it. <laughs> right. But you know, those things are always never really effective. And um, it got worse. The flames were moving very quickly. Cars started to burn. Tires were melting. Melting, and people, yeah. Yeah. People got out of their cars. So I would do the same thing. Right. And without thinking, they would take their keys with them. And right. so it it trapped that no one could move their cars off to the side of the road and it trapped their friends and sometimes family and their neighbors behind them. And so people had to scramble down surface streets and other ways to try and get away from this fire because they couldn't get down this main artery away from town. And that was really gripping.
1: For me, I, the thing that's the, the scene that stuck with me the most was the scene of evacuating the hospital.
2: Oh my gosh. Yeah.
1: And I mean, that literally gave me an anxiety attack. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just listening to taking these critically ill patients and when once all the ambulances, which there weren't mm-hmm. very many were filled, literally shoving these people into hospital workers who weren't even medical professionals right. into their cars and said, just go, just, just go. get, just go get out of here. And the. The poor woman who had just given birth to a baby.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my
1: gosh. They kind of followed her. She was one of the people they really followed closely, you know, with her backstory. And then when she gave birth and then getting tossed in this car with the, the baby clinging to her, you know, this mm-hmm. brand new, just entered the world baby.
2: Yeah.
1: Clinging to her. They didn't couldn't even put the seatbelt on them.
2: And she still and, hadn't, she had to hold her own IV bag, I think, right. or something like that. Yeah. And yeah. Didn't, didn't know, this is a hospital administrator, you right. know, didn't know the guy. And her husband was in one of the other vehicles somewhere out trying to escape. And she's wondering where he is. And right. boy, and then the, one of the other ambulances that did have a variety of older patients yes. got stuck in a cul-de-sac and right. couldn't get out. And they had to like try and go into a house and just use hoses and rakes and shovels to try and clear the fire away for them until they got rescued. And what, what really was heart wrenching there was, you know, she interviewed one of the nurses who spent a good portion of that time making goodbye phone calls to her family. Can you imagine what that must be like? You know, I,
1: I couldn't, I just, it was awful. And then hearing about that phone call that the, the husband of the woman with the baby makes to, hmm a, another like a family member, an ex wife right. or something right. like that, who has all the other children with her.
2: Right. It was his ex wife. Yeah. And
1: thinks that the kids can't, thinks he's not on speaker and says to her, Hey, I don't know if I, I don't know where my wife is. I don't know where the baby is. I, yeah. And the, and the, here are these little kid, the little kids in the back hearing that they don't know. Nobody knows where their mom is. Yeah you know how awful
2: well and then for there's them. the the um the other kind of gripping tale to me was the bus driver with the the elementary yes. school bus driver who oh. evacuated a bunch of elementary school kids right. wrangled a couple of the teachers to come with him but it was hours of trying to go these back streets to find a safe you know driving through the flames yeah. you know safe way out of this town and just you know, how scared they were, you know, but they couldn't really be too scared in front of all the kids who were, you know, oh my gosh, if you, that was the most edge of my seat reading in the entire book. Yeah.
1: It was, that was so scary, but you know, I mean, it just made, it made me think, you know, back to all the conversations that we had here in our town when we thought a fire could be imminent. Right. And we only have two egress routes out of town here.
2: Right. In and yeah.
1: we, you know, there was constant reassurance by the police that, yeah, don't worry, we can get everybody out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I both live out of town. We live a little further down the yeah. hill. You know, it's a little bit different for us, but, you know, my husband and I, we had we had many conversations about okay what are we going to do what's the fastest way to get out because you know what if 395 is a parking lot you know right. and we've we've had situations with the Swall Meadows fire right that happened a few in our own our own town of paradise just <laughs> literally yeah. just down you know around the corner where you know we could see the flames on the hill
2: right right
1: and you know, you start putting some bags together and you know, this it was years ago, so our kids were a lot littler and
2: well, you you've know you've gotta
1: have a plan in place.
2: You really do. And I think, you know, unfortunately the in our area there's the swall fire, there was the mm-hmm. Mountain View Fire, right? Uh, Walker Cold mm-hmm. where people, you know, again were kind of running for their lives. And yeah. you know, this book, I think we, we chatted briefly about this, Stacey, this book really brought it home to me and Wills and I had a conversation after we each finished reading this book. Like we need to have our, our to go box in the hallway closet, right to go near the garage. And we're not going to try and take two cars. We're going to go together in one car. Cause that was boy in the paradise book. You learn why you don't want to take two cars. Right. (laughs) Yep. Um, And, you know, it's just because it's a serious thing that you, you will not have the time that you think you might have to get out.
1: That's right. Um, And,
2: And you know, yeah. You
1: can't argue about what you're going to take. There's not, there's not time for that. You need to make those decisions before. Yeah. And, and have it ready to go.
2: Have it ready to go. Yeah. You know, because that's one of the things we we were chatting about, too, is that, you know, what Lizzie illustrates so well is that, you know, a big, out-of-control wildfire doesn't care who you are. They don't care how nice right. your house is or how big your SUV right. is or whether or not you believe in climate change. It just knows you're in the way. And right. until you're not, either because you get out of the way or because it kills you. So right. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's that's the decision that you're, you're faced with. And that's what comes across so clearly in this book, Paradise, yeah. that is so... So difficult to read. Well,
1: and I I listened to it on audible Mm -hmm. and she, she, Lizzie Johnson is the reader. She's, um, and she's also, you know, obviously the author, but she's got this really sweet voice Mm -hmm. and she seems listening to her, you know, she sounds really young too, but, um, Mm
2: -hmm. I think she is, she,
1: she, I, you know, she has there's this calming sense to her voice and that helped kind of continue listening along even though you know (laughs) these people are just in they're fighting for their lives but um, she did a really really good job and I I would recommend it to our Readers, what, no matter where, what kind of town you live in or no right. matter what you think the threat of a wildfire is in your area, we're all, even, you know, she does mention at the same time that this fire was happening, there were fires that were sparked down in Southern California and sure. in much more urban and suburban areas. And so it happens there too
2: in more affluent areas too. And yes. how, mm-hmm. you know, that got a lot of news coverage as whereas paradise right. didn't really, although paradise happened so quickly. She did. We will mention as well, you know, that I, I thought like the first three quarters of the book were the most like paced, really like, you mm-hmm. know, this book is, this is the narrative of what's happening she does continue her research after the fire and you learn all about, there's like over 27,000 insurance claims. There's, you know, she goes into the whole responsibility of Pacific gas and electric and the forestry management issues, which were controversial. And we'll hear more about that in our next segment when we're having a conversation with an expert on this stuff. Um, but you know, the town itself, it was only 2018, but it's still rebuilding, you know,
1: yeah, um, they're they're not even close to being where they were before. Right. It's going to take a lot of time, Yeah, for sure. But readers, we our listeners, we encourage you to pick up Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire by Lizzie Johnson. Check it out and let us know what you think. And in the meantime, take a deep breath and we'll be right back.
0: Ample oxygen is a basic requirement for human molecular metabolism.
2: Welcome back, listeners. We are at the conversation portion of our podcast, where we bring a local individual from the Eastern Sierra region who contributes uniquely to the live, work, play lifestyle we enjoy over here. And today, we are excited and honored to have a well-known local author join us, Mr. David Carl. David, welcome.
1: Welcome, David.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: Um, You know, uh, David... I've I've run into you at the Eastern Sierra Book Festival uh, at the LeVining Library. Um your wife Janet is a is a gracious substitute at the library and 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 you guys are just you're almost everywhere <laughs> around the around the area. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and how you ended up in the Eastern Sierra?
3: Of course. Um Janet my wife and I came here in 1982. So next spring, it'll be 40 years. I wow. cannot believe wow. that. <laughs> what brought us here was our, our. we were both California State Park Rangers. And um, we had both been working for a number of years in other parks in California. And in that year, uh, the legislature had created um, the brand new Mono Lake Tufa State Reserve and with only one Mm -hmm. ranger assigned to it and so we asked the uh, powers that be if they would consider allowing us to job share and We worked. They did, and that one of part of the idea was we wanted to have a couple of kids, and that happened. And um, but the, the the job sharing worked out so well that that um, it uh, we raised a couple of boys. We stuck with this job for uh, over twenty years. Wow. We both retired from state parks, um, but we're still here and this <laughs> is home, and. Job sharing—you might imagine—working half time gave me some time uh, to write, and I started writing while I was still in the job. Uh, my first book was published um, in 1992. I didn't retire till 2000, and um, but since then, i, I it, it really got serious. <laughs> the writing, <laughs> and uh, after 2000, uh, in the last 21 years now. Um, I now have 17 titles out. Um, Some of those are second editions, like the one that we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, yeah, it kind of amazes me to look back on that. So um, yeah, so today, um, uh, that's what I do. Janet is retired, but she's still very involved with the volunteer program at Mono Mm -hmm. Lake. She created that on retirement. And uh, she's a librarian, and I (laughs) I take care of things. (laughs) I'm. I'm also now uh, involved. I've I've been involved with the historical society in in um, Levining. The Mono Basin Historical Society was president for quite a few years, and um, last year I was elected to another office uh, with the California State Park Rangers Association, and so I stepped down from the presidency of the historical society for for this the duration of this, this <laughs> new new challenge. So that's that's partly what I'm doing now.
2: Only so many hours in a day, even when you're retired, right?
3: Yeah, I think almost everybody I talk to who's retired talks about that. Retirement <laughs> doesn't mean you just sit around or go play golf. At least, not not for most of us.
1: David did did you were you, first of all were you are you a native Californian? And then my other question is park ranger and author. Those are kind of very disparate types of careers did you grow up wanting to be like either one and then the other just happened or how did that evolve
3: okay first i i was born down in anaheim california um grew up um in orange the outside the city of orange in a very rural kind of upbringing my father was in the horse business and um, so kind of a agri- semi-agricultural upbringing for uh, an area that was rapidly urbanizing. Hmm. Um, and then uh, how I got, I, I went to school and got at UC Davis and got a degree as a wildlife biologist. Hmm. And um, the, the park ranger thing kind of just happened because of summer, the need for summer work to make money hmm. and uh, get through summers and, and during uh, university years and uh i started working as a state park aide uh, down in in southern california beaches and uh was very impressed with the people i worked with and uh, at the time state parks were really expanding the the staffing um that that changed rapidly it hasn't been the case for a number of years but uh, they were hiring and Mm -hmm. um that's how i came in and um met my wife because she was a ranger also. And, and that, that all, I'm my, my future wife, uh, we met at Kings Canyon national park, actually. Yeah. So writing, um, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I didn't think of myself as a writer as I was going through my academic years. Um, mm-hmm. I, I did get a master's degree along the way, um, <laughs> uh, the, but I, I always enjoyed it. Um, and, uh some something during the during the work uh, uh, i it, my brain would started to to create essays um about things that would emerge from being mm-hmm. a ranger at Mona Lake and so i the, the first writing and published that I did was here uh, with the mammoth Times um okay. a local newspaper right and I wrote back in the um 90s mostly well the late 80s and 90s for about Uh, 12 years 10 years I wrote about once a month uh, a column that became a a semi-regular thing in the Mammoth Mm -hmm. Times and those essays became the basis of the first book uh, oh that's awesome called Mono Lake Viewpoint
2: right
1: that's great
2: so so you just brought something up before we get to the current book which I really want to get to you know you've been in the Mono Basin now for four decades you've seen a lot of Change happened there, and also been involved in the conservation movement there, right? Can you talk a little bit about what you see differently today, or what what the changes you've seen affected today? Because there's there's even just recently good news around the water for the basin as well.
3: Sure, for for Mono Lake and the yeah. streams feeding Mona Lake, that whole you know, hopefully people listening to this have some idea about that. It's interesting how um, back in the eighties. Uh, there was a lot of statewide awareness and across the country, really, uh, the the campaign to save Mono Lake. Mm-hmm. And as when we first arrived in eighty two, um, we did not know what was going to happen with this lake. Um, the the putting it into the state park system was was a, a step in the direction to try to bring more attention and more more clout uh, in the, in that that challenge. But we really didn't know, and Mono Lake was at its lowest historic point that mm. year. Mm. So today, uh, well, in 1994, quickly, the uh, the state water board, uh, because of court decisions, amended the city of L.A.'s licenses to divert water. Um, and we thought that within 20 years, um, 94 would be 2014, 20 years later, we would reach a, a, an elevated lake uh, res- partially restored about halfway back and uh, enough to protect it. And that hasn't happened. Um, mm. So just yesterday, I went to a, a local hearing about the air quality issue that's a, f- a part of the story, and um, the Air Quality Control Board in the Great Basin wants Mono Lake to be brought up to a certain level to solve that problem to cover right. the blowing dust area. Right. And it's been twenty-seven years, um, and the it hasn't. We're, we're still nine feet or ten feet below where the lake Berlin should be. So, wow. That's one of the, the things. I guess the other change in 40 years is um, I, it, it never used to rain so much here. And it, when it, when precipitation fell, even at the elevation where I live in Mono City or at the lake level, which is you know, 60, say, call it 6,500 feet, um, Mono Lake's a little uh, l- lower and, and Mono City's a little higher. Anyway, it, it used to be snow. And uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in our winter precipitation. And hardly ever saw rain, and yeah. it's really a change. It's very, it, it, it just a, not a scientific observation about climate warming, but it's there. It's pretty real. And uh, this last storm, just well, a week and a half ago, mm-hmm. a lot of rain and just a little bit of snow here in Mona City.
1: Yeah. Uh, we've we've only been here twenty years, and we've noticed that too: more rain, less snow. Yeah
3: you have yeah. only been 20 years, so so you and I both, after 40 years and 20 years, maybe we're almost locals.
1: I <laughs> think so. Yeah. <laughs> we have a
3: historical society and a lot of those folks have been here generations.
1: I right? know. I haven't got <laughs> I haven't gotten my paperwork yet. So I don't <laughs>
2: Well, I want to get to the Historical Society briefly as part of this conversation too. But first, you know, that does tee up the conversation of the book that we want to chat about today, which is an updated edition of your Introduction to Fire in California, which I believe was originally published back in 2008, if I'm correct. Can you talk a little bit about how that book came about and, and um, why you updated it? Sure. Um,
3: it, is, it was the third book that I had published by the University of California Press, UC Press, um, and in 2008, uh, it it was the third in a series that became four books. Um, the first one was Introduction to Water in California, and then the next one had to do with air in that same title sequence, and then fire. And uh, so now that's 2008. That's 13 years ago, mm-hmm. and and we'll talk about what happened, why there's a second edition. But then I also. You know, finished that up with a book called the Introduction to Earth, Soil, and Land in California. And then I have another book with UC Press, too, that my wife and I did. Uh, we traveled the 38th parallel that runs through Mono Lake around the world, uh, talking to people and investigating wow. inter- environmental <laughs> water stories and um, on that latitude. And uh, so there's a book out called Traveling the 38th Parallel, a water line around the world. So, um, so yeah, the, the UC Press thing happened um, in terms of writing of books, um, because I, the first nationally published book I had was an, uh, published by an academic press called Prager, and it was called Drowning the Dream, um, as an environmental history of California, looking at how water choices shaped California. And then Sierra Club Books picked it up in paperback. Mm -hmm. I was very happy about that and uh, changed the name to Water and the California Dream. Mm. And and then they stopped publishing books. And so now it's published by Counterpoint Press out of the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's still in print. Um, We did an update to it, too. We did a second edition um, when it went to Counterpoint
1: did did the increase in all of the wildfires that we're seeing across the state was that the catalyst for updating um the introduction to fire book
3: yes um that very much uh, but but um so my editor at UC Press essentially came isn't it nice when you're a writer and an editor comes to you and says we would <laughs> like you to do this um don't have to i didn't have, I didn't have to pitch this um, But um but they, but there are a number of things, not just the, the size, the megafires, um, the, the the changed fire behavior that people are, are, are seeing, particularly in the last few years. Um, um, so I was able to to finish this book last November, um, and and uh, it came out in August. Um, they allowed me even though it was written before that most almost all of it they they allowed me to wait and see what last year's fires uh Mm, statistics and numbers would be but there were other issues too that if you think about it most people are aware of that in in since the first edition there were issues about insurance that have become more and more you know of a problem in relation to fire and, and people living in fire zones there were issues about um uh, electricity in our electrical system and the the power shutoffs, and how, right. why those happen and how they affect things. Um, there were, there were a number that then COVID came down the line, my gosh. in in, yeah. in 2020 as I'm finishing the book. And so we, we, there's a, a, a brief, but uh, there's a section in there about how the firefighting uh, uh, crews and staff had to deal with that. And just, what it meant in terms of the strange year that 2020 brought to California. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me about the book, and I think I mentioned this to you, David, is, you know, Prior to reading your book, I had just finished the, uh, an advanced copy of Paradise, which we just talked about in the podcast. And of course, you know, in the news and just stepping outside most summer, um, you could smell smoke or see smoke and there were fires north of us. You know, fire, wildfire was, uh, in my mind, a very scary thing. And it was always, at least in the in the news, kind of like out of control and in some cases was. But what your book illustrated for me in a very clear, concise way, because it's not a Thick book. It's written for the likes of me. I think is that fire is actually, if you understand it, and it, it can be beneficial. It's useful, and and I, it, it took away a level of that that fear that I had mentally going into reading the book. Can you talk about what you put into the book and and what it's meant to convey?
3: Yeah, um, the and and that's you're right. The book is written for. All Californians, I guess I would say, I would love it if it helped us, all Californians, to uh, understand very well our our place in a state that where the landscape is evolved with fire. This is a um, all, almost almost all of California is uh, is very fire prone, mm-hmm. and and that isn't. Um, Bad or good, you you couldn't. You, I wouldn't characterize it that way. What it is is it. It is the the condition of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. in, in this part of the world and um, everything. You think about it this way. Everything as challenging and as and as tragic. Fire can be in in human communities. Everything good in nature and in in the world and uh, natural things evolved with fire fire and water and air and climate those are these are elements that work to shape the plants we know the plant communities we know that right. the, the mm-hmm. wildlife that's here and and um f- until really the the spanish arrived in california but the 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 native californian people uh the indigenous people of, of this area um lived pretty well in um not just in in uh, you know dealing with wildfires but they they used fire a lot as a tool on this landscape mm-hmm. and um and and the, and it, and it, of course there were 300,000 people at that time in mm-hmm. california or what became california and today we have 40 million so one of the challenges is that we have not only a different way of living on the landscape in relation to fire um, we have so many of us who um, mm-hmm. have been planted into this fire landscape, and it it varies a lot, of course. And so the book is is looking at across the whole range of of types of landscape and and plant communities that there are in California, plant communities being the the basic fuel of all of this. Um, Southern California chaparral, where a good twenty million of the Californians live is uh, is is definitely a, a a very challenging fire environment for people to be in the the chaparral right. shrub communities burn usually right about this time of year in the mm-hmm. fall when the santa Ana winds come and they burn right. in in a very uncontrollable way when that happens um, and and of course, in our part of the world um the eastern sierra is a relatively if you look at the fire risk maps we're we're relatively low risk compared to the west side of the of the sierra nevada and the coast ranges and and other parts of the state and yet we have our fires and Mm -hmm. and they are they are in different plant communities that we have we have the sagebrush scrub which will burn just as hot and with big flames as, as chaparral does but not as often and we have the the pine forest um and we of course we then we have the the high alpine areas that we've always thought would pretty much not carry much fire when well, they don't, but it um, and, and pretty much be a, a barrier against those fires over on the other side of the hill. And what happened this year, part of the story about how things are changing with fire is that two of the state's biggest fires, the Calder fire and the Dixie fire to the North of us right. started on the West side of the slope of the Sierra and okay. actually crossed yeah. over the crest. Over. That's, that's, that's new. That's a, that's a first. And yeah. Yeah. So what
1: can, do you have any theories of what you attribute to that happening for the first time?
3: Well, there, there's, when I write these books, of course, I rely on the expert scientific research and, and, and the folks. So my theories are are to share that what, what is, we're being told and what, and mm-hmm. basically, um, it, it, you know, cl- the, besides uh, the, the obvious answer that that I think you may be looking for is climate change. Uh, Climate warming is, is changing the way fires burn, it's changing how dry things are, how hot Mm -hmm. things are. All of that is almost intuitive. If you, you know, I know people who have trouble with the whole concept that uh, it's setting that aside, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but beyond that, um, uh, go back to the fact that there's so many of us and, Mm -hmm. and where we are. And so decisions about where we put um, residences and and towns and people um has have put people right in in more and more numbers and so something like paradise um, and and is is one example a terrible example relatively small compared to some other areas that that uh that um where fire in in recent years has done some things like move into santa rosa you know we know it moved into into the urban areas of southern california and that's a little different but yeah so so all of that is is part of um what's changing and then so my theories are that um we we where we where we are is uh, we is we need to know that we need to understand where we are and we need to understand how best, I, I, I put it, uh, I wish that uh, people uh, would would join the very long list of fire adapted species
2: that live in this area in California. Mm-hmm. And right. we would become one of those species. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you talk a little bit about that? Because one of the things I learned from your book that I didn't realize before is that our way of managing forests over the last century or so um, has been, was kind of controversial in the beginning you talked about indigenous tribes and how they dealt with fire and used fire um and then we came into a process of you know fire is bad all the time and now we're understanding differently and your book illustrates this really well i love the whole section on pine cones and different types of conifers that was just fascinating to me how fire is necessary for the growth and the health of those forests Um, but can you talk a little bit about about that because the changing forest Management has added to this too, right?
3: Sure, and um, happily, that that's that seems to be more and more being recognized and um, and a change. But let's talk about what it is. Is that back when around the turn of the century, um, uh, uh, as the U.S. Forest Service was created just after the turn of the twentieth century, um, there was a, a, a significant debate going on about how to manage. The, the forest wildlands in particular focused on forest here. And um, the, it, it happened in California and it happened in the media. Um, the, there was a, a light burning was the term that they were talking about then. And, and there was recognition um, that the, the California Native Americans had been using fire a lot. Um, ranchers who were now moving onto those landscapes uh, some of them, uh, a lot of them, really wanted uh, saw the benefit of of, of regular uh, burning in in um, forested lands and in the uh, the chaparral, or I mean the, uh, the, the 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 foothill woodlands areas and and, and the grasslands mm-hmm. areas that mm-hmm. were So this light burning debate went on, but it it came down and it got settled and and got entrenched. Um, As the Forest Service started fighting fires and then had some really big disasters occurred in the Rocky Mountains uh, with firefighters um, being killed. Uh, And basically, anyway, the policy became very rigid that they would attempt to put all fires out as soon as possible Mm -hmm. uh, once they were identified. Well, a century later, um, or even before that, uh, it was becoming apparent that a lot of the, the, the problems that had been predicted came true that uh that we basically had uh, as one of the early writers said we were going to have a lion by the tail and not and you know and, and not know how to let to let go or was it a bear one some something <laughs> very powerful thing right <laughs> and um that's where we got to and um so there's some interest you know this book we should mention it has 111 illustrations it's almost every time you turn a page there'll be another picture or some color illustration and um Three of the pictures in there are are a sequence from 1890 in the giant Sequoia Grove, uh, Mariposa Grove in in, uh, Yosemite National Park, showing the big trees with Mm -hmm. people there. And then uh, I think the next one's 1970, 80 years later. And Mm -hmm. those trees are almost invisible because so much growth of young fir trees has come in around them. And then... The, the good news is by uh, a picture I think I used from 2013 shows how the, the National Park Service or they started recognizing right around 1970 that, that they, mm-hmm.
2: they
3: they were threatening their 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 treasures there uh by that policy of fire exclusion. And, and so they they've been working hard, not not as thoroughly across all of the national park and national forest lands as it should have been. It's been a, amazingly slow to adopt the the needed number of acreage of, of prescribed burning that needs to go on in order to deal with. scientific estimates based on a whole lot of things mm-hmm. that, that suggest that from five to ten million perhaps acres a year were used to be uh, uh, affected by fire uh, before the the Spanish became mm-hmm. to California now. That we're, we we are very excited because uh, you know last year we had four over four million acres in California uh, burnt by these incredibly uh, disastrous fires. The point is that uh, um, the the character of those fires is what's changed. And back when there was over five million acres of regular moderate burning under the control mostly of the the native people, the fires were were not uh, the, they had a very different character. Right. And that's that. That needs to happen. It will happen. It's happening. The uh, on, without our control now, and right. unfortunately, in in disastrous
2: ways. Yeah, I think one statistic I took out of your book that really stuck out at me, and and you were characterizing, you know, the changing nature of forests, and then the you know adding in the droughts and the infestations that hit these forests, and I, I believe it was in the decade after twenty ten some. 140, 145 million trees died in these forests, and then they become added fuel for new fires, right? Yeah. Did I get that right?
3: Yeah, and locally here in, in uh, Mammoth and the Mono, uh, Mono County, you know, in the 2020, we experienced the smoke yeah. intense kind of smoke from the Creek Fire. Mm-hmm. The Creek Fire became the single largest uh, single-source uh, fire uh, there, we have a lot of complexes that merge together to make really big fires but the creek fire is the biggest um single fire um million acres and, and and when it blew up it was burning in the the ponderosa pine um belt of of forest over in the west side over in the San Joaquin Valley area San Joaquin right. River right. Yeah, and it blew up with incredible energy and it 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 just a whole lot of standing dead trees uh, were involved um they, they that happened because of a very very long drought we really are in, have been in drought for two decades with just a few years punctuated right. in there to break it up right and then and then the pine bark beetles that are always there trying to to do their thing with trees uh without water these trees cannot uh sap them out can't flood them out and mm-hmm. so they they get in they kill the trees so all of these conditions came along when then the heat and the dryness and um and and came together and we got this monstrous blow up and talking about just one of one example the creek fire right of course our our we watched it um everybody watched it wondering if it would cross the sierra it did not for a number of reasons but the the smoke certainly did yeah that's a whole nother story
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know this is a serious topic um but just to you know, to close out on the book, I, I just want to reiterate to our listeners and thank you, David, for updating it. I found it very useful. I'm not an expert. And, um, you know, I found it very readable and approachable. And again, I just I understood the different types of wildfire and the, and the contributing factors and the uses and dangers of it better, having finished this book. So I, I hope our listeners will, will pick it up and come away with the same, the same thing.
3: How gratifying is that for an author to hear? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just said it anyway. I said it to Stacy before we, we even invited you on. Um, David, let's, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about what, you know, tell us you lived here for a number of years. You certainly enjoy it here. You know, for our listeners, what do you, what do you and Janet like to do when you're not writing books or covering the library?
3: <laughs> <laughs> we hike a lot. Um, yeah, we are very uh, gratified and pleased that um, the Yosemite High Country uh, is just our back our backyard, if you will, um, and we use we take advantage of that. I have an annual tradition now. I'm 71 now. Wow.
2: <laughs> oh, you don't look it.
3: I'm yeah. And and I have a tradition to check to see if I'm old. I just declare <laughs> it. But, but actually, I'm not yet because I still am able every summer. I did it last summer to do a, my day hike up to the top of Mount Dana from the Tioga Pass. Awesome. And, nice. And, and accomplish that without dying <laughs> but no we we love to ice skate on the frozen lakes when that opportunity that brief opportunity shows up in some mm-hmm. years in the winters we used to do some downhill skiing but mostly we're cross-country skiing these days yeah and uh i haven't been on mammoth mountain in decades <laughs> <laughs> mammoth mountain I'm in, um june's a little closer but well uh, but mostly we cross-country ski yeah um, you know, just, uh, I love the seasons. I love the fall. Um, uh, fall is the, the, the best season of all up here, I think.
2: I agree.
1: I agree. It's beautiful.
2: it's beautiful. You know, you did talk a little bit about your involvement with the Historical Society. For our listeners who may not be familiar with it, can you briefly talk about the museum that's there in Levining? Sure.
3: The The, uh, the Mono Basin History Museum is in Hess Park, um, little little county park in, yeah. right in Levining. And it's been there in, um, in the old schoolhouse that was moved. One of the one of the earliest schoolhouses, one room schoolhouses, in, in this area around Mono Lake, was moved there 28 years ago. Now I think is that right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then on the grounds, um, I mean, it has a lot of a lot of the the history of the area, of course, and all the various topics dealt with inside. Mm-hmm. Um, on the grounds, there's a lot of equipment, various kinds of mining and ranching equipment, and then there's the very popular upside-down house, uh, <laughs> yeah. and and the upside-down house is a like an upside-down miner's cabin um, built by Nellie Bly O'Brien mm-hmm. as a tourist attraction in uh, back in the in the fifties. And it got, it was in going to be taken down, uh, as the whole schoolhouse was, um, it was threatened with that and it is now it was moved to our property. And it's probably the main reason that um, so many people from all over the, the internet, all over the world, uh, end up coming into Levining and going, well, where's the upside down house <laughs> <laughs> when it, when it's open this time of year, the museum and the upside down house are, are not open. Um, right. you have to look in the windows, but, um, but but what's inside everything's upside down you step in and uh, mm-hmm. there's a bed and there's a there's a table and it's all up on you know above you there's a cat up there staring at an upside mm-hmm. down mouse across the the cabin <laughs> upside down fireplace all those things very funny I
2: love it I love it
3: <laughs> anyway it's a it's a group of um, I think we have a I forget about 200 members from all over. Not not all uh, local. We meet monthly, and every the first Monday of each month, we have a speaker, a history speaker. Um, very respected uh, series. We've been doing this for many years now, and I'm so pleased with that. I, I still help, even though I'm no longer president of the society. Right. I, I still help organize that.
1: And if people want to get involved with that, how would they find information? Well, we're
3: like everything is these days <laughs> monobasinhistory.org org Monobasin History, all one word and um and then um you know we we try to get the word out uh but uh, the first monday of each month of the year we we have speakers and there'll be there'll be another one uh, we just did one this week um and they'll um, I'm trying to remember who's what's happening in december oh, one of our our historians going to give a talk about lundy canyon
2: and the history there. Nice. Brilliant. That's I, I would encourage our listeners to to uh, check that out. I know we've talked, Stacy and I have talked mm-hmm. a little bit about Lundy Canyon on a previous episode, but they'll probably get a lot more information um, from that.
3: We're doing them via Zoom and now we're beginning to get back to in person. We almost, we always used to do potluck dinners and then have right. some- We're we're, now we're hybridizing
2: that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll put a link to that in our show notes for our listeners to check out.
2: Yeah. And so um, another question we always ask our guests, David, is, you know, is there a book you're reading now or a book you would recommend to our listeners? And it can be yours or it could be a different (laughs) one.
3: Well, the one answer is that i'm always reading um i uh, that's just i'm one of those people you know?
1: <laughs> so are we ironically yeah, well, let's, imagine let's that library right
3: <laughs> so um you guys can't this is there's no video here but i'll hold this book up i just finished reading uh the lincoln highway uh, a couple days ago um, raced through it um and it's by a man named Towles. t-o-w-l-e-s amor towels he wrote A Gentleman in Moscow, which was also great. Um, this, this really grabbed me and I don't even know how to characterize it. It's a different kind of book. Um, uh, a story of, of young men, uh, boys. Um, they traveled the Lincoln Highway, which is a cross country highway. But, uh, what, what makes that happen and how it happens and all the various characters involved are, are just incredibly well written and, and compelling.
2: You know, that book is getting a lot of great I think it's just come out and it's getting a lot of great reviews um and a lot of press. I was telling Stacey just yep. this morning it's in my it's at the top of my two read pile for this weekend because it's a nice thick looking book. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, you <laughs> know, a listen, uh, Gentleman in Moscow was one of my favorite books the year it came out uh, and a very unique story. And his first book, Rules of Civility, was an excellent novel as well. Lincoln Highway sounds so different than those two novels. I'm anxious to see what Tal's story is and and what comes out. So you you recommend it.
3: Yeah, and he's he has a unique approach to to storytelling and uh and punctuation for that matter too.
1: <laughs>
2: Spoken like a writer.
3: <laughs> well he doesn't use quotation
2: marks, I'll tell you that.
1: <laughs> as now as a teacher, that will would drive me crazy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it works. It works. It works. Well well, I will compare notes with you, David, when I'm done reading it because I'm anxious anxious to read it. Thank you for for recommending it for our listeners. And David, thank you for joining us and talking about the work and and especially this uh, updated edition of Intro to Fire in California, which again, um, I just recommend to listeners as a great brief introduction to understanding the behavior and the causes of wildfire. Um, Yeah, thank you for joining us, David. Thanks, David. Thank you very much. This was fun. And thank you listeners for joining us for another episode of the oxygen starved podcast. We hope you found it entertaining and informative. As always, you can find us at our Instagram account o2starved, where you can comment and let us know what you're reading or what you think of these books, or, or on our Facebook page you can also find our our show page oxygenstarvedpodcast.com where you can listen to these episodes our past episodes or also email us uh through there so we encourage you to stay engaged in the meantime we hope your fall is going well and uh stay safe and stay reading we will hear we will hear you you will hear us again in two weeks when we bring you our top picks of 2021 in the meantime, stay safe. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, in Compattech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.